It's indeed a privilege uh, to stand before you and bring God's word from the passage we have just read. A few weeks back, uh, when the pastors asked me to uh, take on this responsibility, I wondered in my heart uh, what topic I would uh, stand to, uh, to preach or what, what passage I would go to. And the Lord in his providence has so constrained myself that I find it imperative to seek uh, grace and to seek encouragement from this passage. But before we do so, uh, join me in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you may strengthen us. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing before you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the book of First Kings, and verses 1 to 24 in chapter 17, as we have read, I've titled it, Trials Upon the Godly. The chapter begins with almost the falling into the scene of perhaps one of the better known prophets of the Old Testament, uh, at a time when Israel was going through a series of very wicked kings. If you read the preceding chapters of this book, you will see that wicked kings came upon Israel from time to time. And as at the time at which Elijah is appearing on the scene, almost uh, without introduction, it's at the time when we have one of the most wicked kings of Israel, and that is Ahab. We read in 1 Kings 16.30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It's very, uh, very difficult to imagine that things could be a lot worse from what they were already previously. When you read the accounts of the kings that went before Ahab, yet somehow Ahab finds a way to even be more wicked. And it takes the Lord's intervention. On the backdrop of this, God raises a prophet to bring his word of judgment upon the nation in the opening verses. The land that ought to flow with milk and honey will now be subjected to a drought of unprecedented severity, such that neither rain or dew will fall upon the, on the land. Read that in verses 1 and 2. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain this year except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Next we read. The heavy hand of judgment upon Israel sets the tone for the rest of the chapter and the events recorded therein. In a sense, it is an account of how Elijah Though preserved, is not spared the effects of the scourge upon the land. We read in the very next verse, verse 3, Depart from here and turn eastwards and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. So in the first place, I want to highlight God's people on earth are not always exempted from trials brought about when God judges sin. 
Elijah, and unknown to him at that time, 7,000 others, is not exempted from the famine and its effects. The prophet from Tishbe does not retreat back to his hometown in Gilead to continue his life as before. After boldly confronting Ahab with such solemn news, he doesn't, as it were, walk away with a skip on his steps and says to Ahab, deal with it. It's your problem. Solve it. Or, as it were, to rebellious nation of Israel, that this is your lot. I'm not part of it. The very next verse, the Lord orders him out of the land to depart, displaced, spat out, if we may use the term, and go to the brook at Cherith. For three and a half years, we read that in James 5.17, and look, Elijah was hidden and away from his people, his hometown. And such are the events that come upon believers when God visits the scene of the wicked. Do not presuppose that somehow it shall not touch you. Elijah, the man of God, the prophet from Tishbe, here is part out from the land. He's displaced. And where is he sent? He's sent to a brook, a chariot, outside of the land of Canaan, outside of Israel. God does allow us to go through such trials. Secondly, at times, the Lord, in his sovereign providence, allows trials to come in torrents, to come one after the next, after the next, after the next. And that is actually the account here in First Kings. We read that Elijah is inundated with a series of trials uniquely to him, apart from the collective global judgment that was facing the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel was facing famine, drought, right? But what happens to Elijah? We specifically read that as he goes there, verse 4, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. But we go down in verse 7, and after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain. The brook at Cherish, Cherith dries up. What seemed to be a relief in the midst of testing soon fades away. The Lord seems to take even the relief that he has provided. I mean, it was the Lord who commanded him to go there. It was not his ge uh, geographical knowledge and uh, knowledge of uh, streams that are able to survive such severe drought that took him there. It was not some excursion that he had done, where we see even upon obedience to God's commandment to go to Cherith, what happens to the brook? It dries up. The Lord seems to take away that relief. Additionally, later on as we read, when the brook dries up, the Lord gives him a command to go to Zarephath, to stay with the widow. Yeah? And as he stays with this widow, you'll think that finally, relief has come upon Elijah, right? But no, what happens next? We read in verse 20, when he cries out, he says, and he cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow 
with whom I sojourn by killing her son. You would think that the presence of a prophet in a widow's house should be a good omen. In many times, in our thinking, we presuppose that having Christians with us, having servants of God in our presence, will in a sense stave off calamity, will in a sense stave off despair, but not so for Elijah. Even in the presence of this great servant, God still brings a trial that is not present in the rest of Israel. We don't read what happened to the rest of Israel. But here, in his obedient submission to God's commandment to go to the widow's house, death still follows him there. Death comes upon the son to this poor widow. And you can imagine what it must have been for the widow. She had lost her husband. And now, in the midst of such severe trial, she's losing her son. The widow has opened her house to the prophet. The jar and the jug are filled daily by the maker of heaven and earth. Yet, he allows this young soul and along with those around him, to be tormented by sickness. There is seemingly no rest for Elijah. And read that the sickness was not a sudden one. It was not a stroke. It was not a heart attack. This was a gradual decline. Painful. And you can imagine watching the breath go out of this boy. You can imagine the anguish, the sorrow, Hence, Elijah cries to the Lord. The Lord, at times, does allow us, in his own providence, to go through torrents of trials. Do not suppose that once you finish one set of trials, you will have a break. It's not university. You don't go for one semester, pass your exams, and that's it. Go for holidays, have nyamachoma. Come back the next semester refreshed. Sometimes the Lord puts us on a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the trials seem to never end. The testing seemed to never end. But secondly, uh, second major point is God's people are preserved according to his sovereign will. Preservation is on the basis of God's sovereign assignments. We have to be very clear in our minds. Not always are our earthly lives preserved in the face of imminent danger, severe testing or trials. In the book of Acts and chapter 7, verse 54, we read the account of Stephen. And Stephen is given grace to endure the mutilation of his body unto death by stoning. So it's not always that the, Lord, the Lord's preservation means that our lives will be, our earthly lives will be preserved. He has promised to preserve us to the end. So there's, there's going to be an end. There's going to be an end. Okay? But the Lord has promised to preserve us to that end. And Stephen is given the grace to bear stoning. And heavens open up and he's seeing the glory of God. He's not seeing the, stone, the stoning people. He's seeing the glory of God. Likewise, 
At times, that becomes our path. But here, Elijah had unfinished business. In the very next chapter of 1 Kings 18, we read that the period of judgment upon Israel comes to an end, and God reveals his power over heathen gods through the acts that Elijah graciously is part of. This, the, the sending of fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. So Elijah had unfinished business, hence the preservation that comes to him. Accordingly, preservation was not for his enjoyment, merely to grow older, merely to see more earthly things, but rather in service to a heavenly king. When you're preserved through your trials, the Lord has an assignment for you. The Lord has an assignment for you. It is not for your enjoyment. It's not so that you can have more parties, so that you can just go through life as it were. When we look around ourselves at this time of the global pandemic, why has the Lord preserved you? Why has it not come upon you that you have been uh, uh, so dealt with this pandemic to a point of death or to a point of incapacitation? Why has God preserved you? There must be an assignment for you to carry out. And if we do not have a spiritual view of how the Lord guides us, how the Lord in providence ordains our path, then we become worthless servants in his presence, really. Because the Lord does equip us. The Lord does give us a mission. We are soldiers at war. And when there's time of peace for the soldier, it's time to train. It's time to prepare. Because war is coming. There's going to be war. In the second sub-note, preservation comes through ordinary means in extraordinary ways. Now we read that when the drought came, what does God tell Elijah to do? In verse 3, depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Now, Elijah doesn't have manna from heaven at Cherith, but rather meat and bread from mouths of ravens. I think this morning we read through the book of Leviticus 11, and we saw how the raven was considered an unclean animal. And this is what God uses. God does not rain manna on Elijah. He could have done that. What does God do instead? He sends a brook, a weak brook, he sends bread and, and meat through the mouths of a raven. Notice, we are, told, we are not told that he had fruits and vegetables. It wasn't a square meal. So Elijah was not having a nice brunch while the rest of Israel was wallowing away in, in drought and uh, in, in difficult time. It was sufficient for the day. And we are reminded in Matthew 6.34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Elijah is not provisioned with a river. He is not given an oasis to drink from, but rather just a brook. And we actually read in verse 7, 
And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Yeah? Elijah is not commanded to speak to a rock to produce forth a gush. Yeah. His faith is tested. Here is a man praying that the Lord will keep the heavens shut. We read that in uh, James 5.17. James 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So here is Elijah at the brook at Cherith with a little brook flowing. And every day he's praying that there might be no rain. And as he's praying, he's watching the brook drying up. But he keeps on praying. He keeps on trusting in the Lord. He kept on leaning on the everlasting arms of God. He looks to him who is the giver of water of life. And notice that God does not give him a contingency plan. There's no contingency plan. This is how basic God's provision is during the time of distress for Elijah. God does not give him plan A and plan B and plan C. There's no uh, strategy going forward. He's only commanded to be at the brook. And while the waters are drying, Elijah is not told, oh, this water will run out in probably a week, so you better think of the next thing. God waits until the brook is dry before the next commandment comes. And when the brook finally dries up, in verse 7, we read in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. Yeah. So upon drying of the brook, Elijah is sent to a widow in Zarephath. Luke chapter 4, verse 25 to 26, describes the significance of this. The rejection of the word of God in Israel, that a poor Sidonian widow is given the honor to host Elijah. Many times the Lord will send us to Sidonian widows in our times of need for our preservation and not the strong men of Israel. Christ says there are many widows in Israel, but Elijah was not sent to them. The 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to Baal, where were they? And why wasn't Elijah sent to them? Why this Sidonian widow? God uses the ordinary. Sometimes when we are in a church setup, we think that God will only use members of this church for your encouragement. God is not constrained. God is sovereign. Sovereignty of God means he's not limited. He's not constrained. You cannot predict how he will move. Did Elijah have a prediction of how God will move in this circumstance? He had no idea. When he was sent to the brook, he probably thought, might as well come here. Might probably be staying here for the next however long God was going to keep the land dry. But that's not the case. 
God allows the brook to dry. And then God sends him to Phoenicia, to this Sidonian widow. Do not despise the Sidonian widow that God sends you to. Now, uh, sorry, in verse 24 we read what happens after the spell of time of Elijah's presence in this Sidonian widow's house. She has a confession to make. She has observed what it has been to live with Elijah. At the end of that time, because of Elijah's response to the trials that have beset them, she has a testimony to make. Now, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The Lord may send us to Sidonian widows, not only for our preservation, but for ministry as well. So do not be blind to the opportunities for ministry in the midst of your trial. Do not be blind to them. Ministry to the unreached may come in our conduct in the face of mighty trials. The Lord turns this crisis of the widow's son into an opportunity for ministry. We read that when the child died, in verse 18, and she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So clearly, the conscience of this woman was pricked by the death of the son. She saw the significance of it. And Elijah, in his response to that trial, ministers to her heart. The events around us are for spiritual good. They're not only to strengthen us spiritually, but they're also opportunities for us to minister. And if we go through this pandemic and we see the pandemic around us, the deaths around us, merely as an event in global history, and there's no spiritual significance for you, then the question becomes, have we adopted a worldly view to what goes on around us? Are we in step, in tune with the Spirit? Do we see opportunity for growth, opportunity for ministry, when God uses ordinary means in our lives? The third point, preservation will go as far as the trial demands. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, we have an assurance and a promise. And I shall read. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We have the promise that accompanies every trial, and we can draw our courage in the face of the most daunting giant with this assurance. Here we see that God did not prematurely remove the trials upon Elijah. It was not, it was not uh, uh, the brook dries and therefore that's the end of it. The brook dried 
will have thought that this narrative will not develop this way. How could the brook to which he sent dry up? This is our experience in our spiritual walk. Trials seem to come. And just when we think that that's the end, what does the Lord do? He provides the widow. The trial, the preservation, go as far as the trial demands. The Lord will many times allow the brooks in our life to dry so that our focus may not be on the brook but on him who sustains life. Notice Elijah was not given further instructions when the brook was drying. He is not given a strategy. Do not be anxious about anything, even when the brooks are drying. The Heavenly Father knows what we need and when we need it. At the right time, not later, or not earlier, he is sent to the widow at Zarephath. So Elijah is preserved only as far as is necessary at the brook. And after the brook dries up, only then is he sent to the widow. And notice, even when he goes to the widow, what does the Lord do? The Lord does not ask the widow to have a gunia of flour or a drum of oil. It's just the jar of oil, uh, sorry, the jar of flour and the jug of oil. Just sufficient for the day. Just sufficient for the day. God does not miraculously provide a bill of flour for them. The preservation that God gives to us will go as far as the trial demands it. But in God's intervention in our trials, be reminded that God will not intervene so as to make us complacent in our spiritual work. Many times as Christians, we think that, oh, wow, we just need to trust in God. And then we, we go on autopilot. We don't think. We do not go beyond. We do not exercise our faith. We do not exercise the opportunities God is giving to us. See what happens to Elijah. When Elijah goes to the brook, he does not find a river flowing there that is sustained somehow miraculously without any effect to the drought. And when it dries, when he's sent to the widow, only a jug of oil and only a jar of lies provided. We do not read that they started a business there to sell cookies. God did not allow them to have complacency in the midst of trials. So do not think it's strange when God intervenes only as to preserve you as is necessary when you're going through trials. God will preserve you just as is necessary. Sometimes, of course, the Lord brings greater blessings, but they're not for your aggrandizement. It's for you to be enabled in service to others. And we read that when the rains came, finally, the jar of oil and sorry, the jar of flour and the jug of oil did not continue beyond that point. The instructions to Elijah, we read that in verse. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day 
that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Do not be complacent in your spiritual work. Do not expect miraculous interventions in order that you can have comfort. Many times we lack passion and zeal for the things of God. We expect God to miraculously bring people here for us to minister to them. Many times God has given you a difficult challenge of going to work. Just as this uh, widow had to work beyond the day that the drought ceased, when the rains came, she had to work. And many times God does that to us. When we have been tested, when we have been strengthened in the midst of our trials, it's not so that we can enjoy and say, now I have grown better in my faith, now I'm more prayerful, hallelujah, it's for myself. It's so that you can go out when the testing ceases. What opportunities of ministry, what opportunities of service are laying ahead of you? Where is the Lord directing you next? To conclude, I have three words of application. In the first place, do you have a spiritual worldview of the events of our time? As I said before, the testing of our faith may come through trials that are visited upon the wicked. When you look at the global pandemic, have you looked at it with a spiritual lens? Or for you, they're just global events that are reported in the news, just statistics that have no spiritual impact in your life. And as you go through those moments of trial, are you flourishing in your spiritual walk? When the testing comes upon you, do you see it merely as a challenge to be overcome? Are you reliant on human, weak, uh, human wisdom or are you reliant on a spiritual walk? Secondly, do not despair in the face of trials. Our path is firmly established. We read in 1 Peter 1.6, Peter speaking to the dispersed Christians in different parts of Asia. He says to them in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, but verse 3 gives the reason why they rejoice. Because they have been born into a living hope. Now, you can imagine the desperation that had gripped these Christians who have been dispersed. They have lost their homes. They have lost their kin. They have lost their identity. They are in foreign lands. And they are not a wanted people. And what does Peter tell them? In this, you greatly rejoice. How do you approach your trials? Are there moments, are there moments for you to sigh in resigned anger that God has visited you with that trial? Or are you one to rejoice? Do you despair or do you rejoice in the face of trials? Of course, 
I don't suppose that Peter was expecting them to throw a party that trials have come upon them. It's the attitude of the mind. And see what he highlights. How long are those trials for? For a little while. You may think, wow, these trials have gone on for a long time. They've come in different form and shape for a prolonged period of time. But in the face of eternity, our trials are but for a little while. And secondly, notice he says, if necessary. So, when you go through trials, it is necessary that you go through those trials. And so when you understand that God sees the necessity of you enduring those trials, what does it do? Gives you hope, gives you joy. That God sees the necessity for your spiritual good to go through a trial. But he's not blind to the effects of those trials. What does he say? You have been grieved. Trials are grievous. Trials are grievous. So don't expect that trials that come to believers are somehow sugar-coated bitter pills. They're not sugar-coated bitter pills. They are bitter pills. But in taking them, the focus is not on the trial, but on the hope born into a living hope, being prepared for heaven, where there'll be no weeping, there'll be no sorrow, there'll be no anguish. We're being prepared for heaven. And hence, the trials sometimes are necessary. My last application, do not despise ordinary means used by God in preservation during trials. Prayerfully act within the means God has provided until he commands differently. Do not despise the little brooks that God will send. Of course, we pray for showers of blessings, but many times God will send us to the brook. And while we are at the brook, we still continue to pray for showers of blessing, but we are reminded sufficient for the day are the sorrows thereof. And therefore, do not despise the dry brooks, the, the brooks in your life. God may send us to a Sidonian widow. God may send you to unbelievers, even, for your preservation. We have a command. Let your light shine before men. When we are given the opportunity to interact with those who are not of the faith, even though they are used by God for our preservation at times, our role, our obligation, is that our light will shine before them, that they may praise our Father in heaven, Matthew 5.16. And so to conclude, may our hearts be lifted to God. As we go through uh, periods of trials, do not be blind to those who are suffering. You may be the brook that they need. You may be the encouragement that they need. You may be used of God. And you may be the means through which God uses to preserve them. God will not always send manna. will not always send water from the rock. It may be your kind act. 
I think Pastor Eric dealt this morning with giving to the needy. And that, in, in a way, is in tandem with this uh, lesson. God may use your giving to preserve those going through trials. So hence, in our obedience, God is glorified in preserving those going through trials. If you are the Sidonian widow, if you are an unbeliever, there's no hope for you unless you realize that there is no peace unless your sins are dealt with. The Sidonian widow, when she saw the trial, she realized that she has sins that have not been dealt with. She has not yet come to faith. The conscience is pricked. And the only way in which the conscience may be pacified is knowing the truth, believing in the truth. And she says finally there, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Unless we come to the cross, unless we lay our burdens at the cross, our our, our burdens will be too heavy to bear unless we lay them at the cross. Shall we pray? Lord our God, we do thank you because you care for us. You ordain all things for our good. Nothing in this universe happens outside your control. And we thank you, Lord, that you preserve us and you keep us and you are promised in your word, you'll keep us to the end. Help us to look to you by faith. Help us that we may grow. As we go into the world, help us that our light will shine before men. In our response to trials, in our response to various testings that you allow to come our way. And we pray for those who are going through challenges, those who are going through testing. May they seek to trust in you as you preserve them. May they seek to serve you as you preserve them. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.